You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Carlisle. In this series, we are following Jesus and learning what it means to take on His yoke. We are pressing into His promise of true life. Good morning, church. So good to have you here uh, with us this morning, uh, viewing all across um, the city. Um, We are excited to get back in um, the Gospel of Matthew and continue our series um, in Matthew. This morning, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 through 28. Uh, Before we get into the passage, um, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for the grace you give us to know you and be known by you. Father, we thank you that you've called us as your sons and daughters to hear what thus says the Lord. Prepare our hearts and prepare our minds, Lord, to hear from you today. God, I pray that you would decrease me as you increase within me. And God, I pray as always, Lord, that you would take my little and make much of it. Glorify yourself as only you can. Let some mind be transformed and let some soul be saved for the advancement of your kingdom. Hide me behind your cross, Father, and allow your words to speak truth to your children this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage reads as follows from Matthew chapter 16, starting at verse 21. It says this, From then on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and the scribes, be killed and raised the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man concerns. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life because of me will find it. For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his soul? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In the story of Alice in Wonderland, In her travel, she comes to a fork in the road and she can't decide whether to go to the right or whether she should go to the left. And she looks up and sitting there, she sees a cat grinning at her from the tree. And she asks the cat, which road should I take? And the cat cleverly replies by saying, that depends. Where are you going? Alice says, I don't know. And then what does he say? He says, well, then I guess it just doesn't matter. Theologian R.C. Sproul continues to expound upon this story by saying these words. He says, if you have no intent, no plan, no desire to get anywhere, what difference does it make whether you take the right or the left? And this is what I want us to, to think about this morning as we read this passage is this. answering this question. If you don't know where you're going, your choices really doesn't matter. Again, if you don't know where you're going, your choices really don't matter. 
In this passage today in, in Matthew 16, we see five distinct things. The first things we see is the t- determination of Jesus. We see a man who knows where he's going. Look with me in verse 21. It says these words, from then on, from that point on, Jesus began to point out to his disciples that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed and be raised the third day. Notice this, that those who know exactly where they are going make deliberate choices along the way. And here we see Jesus making deliberate choices. This passage marks a significant transition within the life and ministry of Jesus. From this point on, Jesus transitioned his focus uh, from his Galilean or Gentile ministry, and he now focuses on Jerusalem and his life mission to die on the cross for human sin. His newfound focus led uh, to a newfound teaching. Notice what it says in verse 21. From then on, Jesus began to point out or began to show, as other translations might, might translate that wording. Notice that Jesus knew where he was going and he was determined. And his teaching must have been very clear because of Peter's response in verse 22 was very intentional. Look at Peter's response in verse 22. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Oh, no, Lord, this will never happen to you, he says. You see, Peter had the wrong address set in his GPS. You see, Jesus' message must have been seen, heard, and understood with great clarity and with much conviction because Peter wastes no time at all by taking him aside and begin to rebuke him. Now, before we go any further, I have to admit that I have a very bad habit when driving. You see, um, when I get in the car to drive, I like to use my GPS, but I like to use it a little different than my wife. My wife is pretty methodical, and she loves um, to have um, used the GPS um, right before we leave the house. She wants us to stop, to make sure we point in our destination, make sure that it comes up, make sure that we know where we're going, and she puts it on the dash, and we follow it to a T. I, on the other hand, have a different philosophy. I just love to use the GPS while we're driving. So if I kind of know a direction where we're headed, I kind of just start heading in that direction. And if I get lost along the way, I allow the GPS to kind of redirect my course. You see, in this passage right here, Peter is being much like me in regards to my understanding of the GPS system. He's just trying to figure it out. Much like me, Peter's just trying to figure it out as he goes. Here's the problem with what Peter has done as far as taking aside Jesus and rebuking him. You see, in the context of the Jewish master-disciple relationship, it would have been audacious for a disciple to correct his master, especially in public and especially to rebuke him. Now, to Peter's defense, you have to understand he's coming off a spiritual high. Remember, he just pronounced through the, uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit and through the understanding and revelation of God who Jesus was, that Jesus was truly the Messiah. You see, Peter rightly identified Jesus' true identity, but he wrongly assumed his function in relationship to his identity. You see, Peter is wondering, how could Jesus the Messiah How could the long-awaited king suffer for sin? 
He was born to rule and to reign, not to suffer and die. He was born to rule and reign as our sovereign protector from Rome and to be our provision from heaven, much like the manna was for the Israelites in the wilderness. This is a good reminder for us as a church that great temptations can come from those who love us and seek to protect us. Church family, beloved, be careful of a friend who says, surely God doesn't want you to face this. See, often our most difficult temptations come from those who are only trying to protect us from discomfort. Peter is not just in all coming off a spiritual high. Peter is also in a state of disbelief and denial. And so he responds irrationally. I love how Proverbs 14, 22 said, talks about this. It says, there is a way that seems right to a person, but its end is the way to death. And listen, I'm not here to berate Peter. I'm not here to condemn Peter because honestly, we see and we can see uh, Peter's life in our own story. You see, our failures, this is a good point to us to remember that our failures are not a deterrent from God's grace. Notice what Jesus does in response. Jesus doesn't leave Peter in his ignorance, yet he confronts him within it. Jesus doesn't criticize Peter in his arrogance. He simply speaks truth to power. Jesus doesn't rebuke. Jesus takes the stance to rebuke the real enemy, Satan, and not the human vessel, Peter. Why does he do that? Because our failures are not a deterrent from God's grace. You see, God in his graciousness has given us a great gift. And in this gift, we see that sin is the canvas. Sin is the canvas that God has given and God has chosen to uh, give to paint his grace upon. See, God's grace is most evident within our failures and our mishaps, more so than our victories and our successes. It's a good reminder for us that we're not just called to be a truth teller, but it's okay to simply be associated with the one who is true. And much like in Matthew chapter 4, Satan tried to seduce Jesus to gain his rightful rule and authority apart from God's plan of suffering and even death. It's a good reminder for us that any attempt to make Jesus king without the cross is an attempt to thwart God's plan of salvation. This is a place of grace for us as a church to remember that Jesus has succeeded where we so often fail. That when we give into the temptations or we give into sin so easily, Jesus did not do so. And Jesus, therefore, has eternal victory over every sin that so, that so easily ensnares us. And Jesus has overcome this world so that our fears within this world won't overcome us. Not only do we see the determination of Jesus in verse 21, not only do we see the dauntlessness of Peter in verse 22, we see the deceptiveness of Satan in verse 23. Look at verse 23 with me. It reads as follows. Jesus turned and told Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but, man, but humans' concerns or man concerns. You see, Satan tried to direct Jesus towards a U-turn. He tried to get him off track of what God had 
purpose for him. And don't blame Satan for this because this is his job. This is his, 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 this, this is his MO. This is in his job description. He is an accuser of the brethren. He is our enemy. But notice how Jesus responds. Jesus turns to Peter, but he speaks to Satan. And Jesus, it reminds us that Jesus loves to undo and uncover the deceptive work of Satan in our lives. Peter was just publicly praised by Jesus, and now he's being publicly reprimanded by him. And it's a good reminder for us that God has no favorites. Romans 2.11 says it this way, that there, there is no favoritism with God. Proverbs 27.6 says it this way, wounds from a friend can be trusted, but an en- enemy multiplies, it, multiplies his or her kisses. And I love this. I love the fact that they allow this to happen because if Jesus would not have associated Peter's work with Satan, if Jesus would not have associated Peter's work with Satan's deception, we would have thought that maybe he was just simply having a bad day. Kind of like a, the Snickers commercial, that commercial where uh, I can see this event happening in a Snickers commercial where Jesus is reprimanding Peter and one of the disciples come to him with a Snickers bar and says, eat it. Jesus seemed like you're having a bad day. And he eats it, and then he turns back into Jesus from this uh, monster who was reprimanding him. It's a good reminder for us that Satan is always, has always been the master of deception in, in disguise. Genesis 3 has, Jesus, has Satan coming to, to Adam and Eve in the form of a snake. And in 2 Corinthians eleven fourteen, we see that Paul describes uh, Satan as being an angel who was disguised in light. And beloved, this is the reality, this is, here's a reality for us to consider that Satan's lies and deception still speak to us this, today. I love a, a little devotion I read this week. It said this about Satan's lies and deceptions. It says, this is a major, major piece of what Paul is talking about in Romans 125. When he says, they exchange the truth about God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. What is the lie? It is a lie that was told in the Garden of Eden, Eden, the false promise that life, heart-satisfying life, could be found somewhere else outside of the Creator. It is a lie of lies, the cruelest lie ever told. If you believe it, it will only leave you empty and discouraged, but it will, but it will set your life on a course towards destruction. Here is a point of grace for us as a church. That if you are believing or if you are, have been struggling to believe or discern between truth and error, if you have, believing, have, have been the one who's believing Satan's lies of deception, I can know that too because um, I also have had that struggle in my life. And if that's been you, if you have been one that has been deceived or has been walking in deception, I have good news for you. Because, and here's the good news, that Jesus has died in order to destroy Satan's deception within your life. Say that again. Here's your hope. That Jesus has died in order to destroy Satan's deception within your life. I love how Hebrews 2.14 says it. It says, so then, or so that, through his death, whose death? Through Jesus' death, he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil. 1 John 3.8 says it this way, 
the Son of Man was revealed for this purpose, to destroy the work of the devil. So not only do we see the determination of Jesus, not only do we see the dauntlessness of Peter, not only do we see the deceptiveness of Satan, in verse 24, we see the difficulty of discipleship. Look with me in that verse. It says, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Notice how the, the situation has gone. Jesus has been ta- teaching them very clearly about his death. Peter hears and recognizes and misconstrues um, what Jesus is teaching. It doesn't align with his understanding of the Messiah, so he goes and rebukes Jesus. Jesus then turns to Peter and doesn't talk to Peter, but he talks to Satan. And after rebuking Satan and rebuking Peter, he then turns to the disciples. Take note, because this is what he would have for us here as a church. Notice how Jesus invites anyone to be a disciple while excluding everyone at the same time. Notice how verse 24 begins. He says, if anyone will come after me. Notice that conditional phrase or wording, if. Anyone. It's if anyone. Not if Peter. Not if James. Not if Andrew. But if anyone, and I love this because Jesus does not give any specific name. He only gives a specific requirement. And listen to the cost of discipleship. He's coming to him and asking him this bare question, will you follow me? You know, we're asked common questions when people find out what we do. If you're a pastor, as often when I go to different social events or community events and someone finds out I'm a pastor, the first question I'm, they're going to ask me is Bible trivia or give me questions about the end of the world or, or the end of the uh, world or end of the world theories. If you're a plumber, I'm sure that, that you'd be prepared to troubleshoot a leaky faucet without ever seeing it yourself. If you're in the military personnel or United States officer, be, pre- be, pre- be prepared to retell your favorite wartime story or some other memorial memorable war-related story. If you're a nurse or a physician, especially in COVID-19 right now, be prepared to answer questions about your most unforgettable experience within this pandemic. You see, Peter has been misinformed about Jesus' mission as being the suffering servant. And in light of the path that Jesus is paving for them, the question now becomes simple. Peter understands who Jesus is. He's he's helped him understand that this is the mission that he's been called to, to suffer and die for sin. And now he looks at Peter and he asks him this very specific question, will you follow me? I love how that devotion I talked about earlier ends and concludes. It says this, it says, the physical created world is full of engaging and entertaining delights. But it is important to understand that nothing in the physical world can give the life that your heart longs for. God alone is able to bring the deepest of joy and contentment to your heart. He is alone is able to give you a reason for getting up in the morning and a purpose for living. He alone can infuse your heart with hope no matter what is going on around you. So in amazing grace, he welcomes you to surrender all your hopes and dreams to him. In love, he beckons you to follow. See, there's three realities of being a disciple of Christ and Jesus makes them out very clear for us. The first one is this, deny yourself. 
What is he saying? He's saying put aside self-righteousness, self-indulgence, and everything that belongs to you, your desires, your ambitions, your thoughts, your dreams, and even your very possessions. This goes in, in line with uh, the passions of the world that John talks about in 1 John 2.16. He talks about there are three enemies of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And in regards to the lust of the flesh, it simply means this. I want what the world wants me to do. I want what the world wants me to do. And this is the first requirement that Jesus calls us to, deny yourself. The second thing he says is related to the lust of the eye. And the lust of the eye is simply this. I want what the world has to offer to me. And what Jesus says in response to the lust of the eye is this. Take up your cross. You see, for the early disciples, the language of taking up your cross would have automatically evoked imageries of crucifixion. Anyone carrying his cross was going so prior to their imminent death. Thus, your life as you once knew it is now over. And then lastly, he says, follow me, which coincides with the pride of life. The pride of life is simply this. I seek the approval of men more so than the approval of God. And what Jesus says to that dilemma is this, follow me. This echoes Jesus' initial invitation to follow me, not just to the disciples there, but to when he first saw them. When he saw Peter and Andrew, he told them to follow me, and they immediately left their, their possessions to follow Jesus. When he saw James and John, he said, follow me. And they left their father and, the, and their family business to follow him. When Genesis, uh, John chapter 3, he looked to Nicodemus and said, follow me. And he left his many years of training and tradition to follow Jesus. And then the author of this great book that we're studying right now, Matthew, in the midst of his lucrative career as an advocate of Rome and an extortionist, of Israel as a tax collector. When Jesus said, follow me, he left everything and followed him. In other words, Jesus is saying this, follow me, pursue me, walk in my footsteps, walk according to my word, walk adhering to my ways, walk trusting in my power, walk living for my praise, walk understanding what Paul wrote about in Galatians 2, 19 and 20 that I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. So not only do we see the difficulty of discipleship in verse 24, we also see the disillusionment of obedience in verses 25 through 27. Follow along with me. He says this, for, it will, for what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his soul? What will anyone give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will reward each according to what he has done. Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. I love what Francis, Francis Chan says in his book, Crazy Love, Overwhelmed by a Relentless God. He says this, he says, If life is a river, the pursuing Christ requires swimming upstream. When we stop swimming, we actively or actively following him, we automatically begin to be swept downstream. Notice this in verse 25 through 27. Each sentence, each verse begins with the Greek word gar or for, and it provides three reasons why we should follow Jesus and trust him in what he's saying and denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him. 
We see this in verse 25. He says, for what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? This is a reminder for us that Jesus came so that you might learn how to die and not to live. Here's the lesson that we want to learn, that real discipleship requires real commitment, pledging our whole existence to the, to the service of God. And here's the paradox. If we try to save our lives, we'll lose it. Yet if we lose our lives, we'll gain it. And here's our hope. When we give our lives in service to Christ, however, we discover the real purpose of living. Verse 26 says this way, for what will it benefit someone if he uh, gains the world, whole world, yeah, he loses his life. Again, Jesus came so that you might learn how to invest in what truly matters the most. And here's the lesson. This life is just an introductory to eternity. When we live like we don't know Christ, we make choices as though, as though this life is all that we have to live or all that we have to depend upon. And here's a lesson from even what we're learning today in COVID-19. COVID-19 reminds us that this earth is broken. It's temporal. It's finite. And it is coming to an end. And the reality is this, is that our world will never get back to normal. This is our new normal. Our world will never be the same. And we should not expect it, nor should we desire it to be. But the brokenness that we experience now is the brokenness, it's the brokenness from the ravages of sin and its deterioration on God's beautiful creation. And here's the solution that God calls us to. God desires that we evaluate all that happens from an eternal perspective. And as a result, you will find your values and your decisions changing. You see, in our day and time right now, karma simply doesn't make sense because good people are dying every single day. It's not just the evil who's dying. It's not those who don't with, that withhold good from other people who are dying. Everybody, especially good people, family members that we know are sick and they're dying. So karma doesn't make sense. Marxism doesn't work because our economy right now is failing us. We have the highest unemployment rate in the history of the United States to, to date. Being a Republican or being a de Democrat, it, it doesn't matter at this time. See, Jesus came so that we might learn how to receive heavenly rewards and not just to be focused on earthly rewards. Look with me in verse 27. He says, for the son of man, came, man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his father. And then he will reward each according to what he has done. I love this because it reminds us that what we, the choices we make and the things that we do matter before our all-seeing and all-knowing and all-loving God. Our choices matter. And that obedience is not, is not indifferent. Our obedience is not indifferent with God. It matters. And here's the reality of false humility. False humility will say, I don't want to receive a reward from someone because it's not about the reward, it's all about the ministry. Well, listen, if you don't like to receive rewards from someone, then what are you gonna do with Jesus at the, end, at the end? 
because Jesus is coming to reward those who are making choices for him, who are admitting their need, admitting their weakness and surrendering to the cross of Christ, of Calvary. He is, he is coming for rewards for those who diligently take up their cross, who, who, who deny themselves and who follow him day in and day, not day, day out. As I close, I just want to be honest with you guys that this has been a really rough week for me. You know, I, I am not exempt from the temptations that Satan presents in my life. I have fallen to, into temptation. I've been unkind. I've been rude. I've been unpleasant to those whom I love the most. Yet throughout this week, God has spoken kindly to me in, in a particular passage that I want to share with you as I close. This is Psalm 139. And if you ever get a chance, I encourage you to read that psalm in its entirety. But Psalm 139, God spoke five realities to me that I want to share with you today as I close. The first reality that he showed me, shared with me is this, is that God knows you. God is not absent-minded and you are not forgotten. That was seen in verse one, where he says, oh Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. Church family, know that God knows you better than you know yourself in this season. Number two, God sees you. God is not inattentive and you are not lost. I saw that in verses two and three. You know when I sit down and you know when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways. Be encouraged this morning that Jesus sees you. He sees you in your obedience. He sees you in your disobedience and he still calls to you and beckons to you to turn and repent to him. But not only does he see you, he also hears you. This is a good reminder that God is not deaf and that you are not alone. Verse four says this, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. And finally, this is the most important thing. I hope that you hear this last point is that God saves sinners. See, God is not selfish. And you are not beyond God's saving, saving grace or his saving hand. I saw this in Psalm 139, verses 17 and 18. How precious are your thoughts, O God, towards me. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I'm still with you. Would you pray with me? Father, we do thank you and praise you that you are a God who calls us by name. You know us. God, you know us better than we know ourselves. And you know this world that we live in is broken, it's frail, and it's, it's coming to an end, Father. Father, I pray by the power of your spirit that you would draw us closer to you. God, in our sinful decisions, in our falling to, temp to temptation, in our brokenness, in our scarcity, in our uncertainty, and in our fear, would you draw close to us, Father, as your people? And would you comfort us by the power of your word? Jesus, I thank you that you've come to save sinners. Help us not stop, help us not to stop, stop believing that we are not people who are in need of your salvation. Every day, God, we are people who are in need of your salvation. Father, I do pray that you would allow some heart to change, some mind to, to change, some heart to transform, Lord, for the glory of your name. I pray that someone even now in the sound of my voice would come 
to a saving understanding of Jesus as Lord and Savior. And they would take up their, they would deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I'm James A.P. Fields, Jr., lead pastor at Sojourn Church Carlisle. Thanks for listening. We're a church that is rooted in the community of South Louisville, and we are seeking to advance the gospel of Christ in South Louisville and beyond. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com backslash Carlisle, C-A-R-L-I-S-L-E. God bless.